nowadays, there is a lot of option for us to actually get people to live their full lives. And even for some of the sickest patients who had a really rough time after a heart attack. CPR. It's what happens after someone dies as a last-ditch, high-intensity effort. Unlike the movies, it usually fails. What if we used that drive, while we're still alive, to heal ourselves? Welcome to CPR for Life, where we help you understand how to reclaim your health by changing your everyday life. I'm Dr. Sagar Doshi, board certified in both lifestyle and emergency medicine, and certified health coach. Our health is like a vehicle. I've seen too many people, including my own family, crash their health because they don't realize they are the ones driving. This podcast aims to help each of us take the wheel and learn where to go. But even though these conversations are evidence-based, they are just for your education. So please talk with your physician before making changes. We're back with Dr. Tang, renowned cardiologist and researcher, to continue the conversation on the effect of the gut on the heart. We left off talking about nutritionally deprived populations. When you say nutritionally deprived populations, I think a lot of people are going to be thinking of areas where there is no food mm -hmm. at all. But are you talking about that or are you talking about our modern day world where all the food is coming from a gas station? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that that is an evolving trend. But for example, I'm talking about in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, that there are some people that have some nutritional deficiency that we actually fortified many of the foods and all that. So we actually did put in a lot of nutrients for the assumption of benefit. But I think it is okay if we know what we put in. The problem is there's a lot of things that we don't know is in the food right now, particularly things that are highly processed. And, mm -hmm. and there are studies out there, we don't know what they are, but I think we know that some of them may not be. So there are people who have isocaloric food with crossover study that look at processed food versus not processed food. And they mm -hmm. have certainly see, you know, problems with metabolic or weight change or whatnot. So that's actually puzzling because if you have the same type of food, but yet it's processed versus not, why would it be different? Certainly something made them different. And so that's why I'm trying to say it's, we still have a lot to learn because I think it would guide us in our public health efforts to try and, you know, at least advise our patients what to do. Right now, we as clinicians are not very good at understanding what they are eating and even explaining to them what they should eat. Many people are very motivated to actually change their diet. There are many very excellent organizations and many very vocal clinicians and many pathways, but the research on this is challenging. It's very challenging to study diet because it's such a complex intervention. And, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of really strong cultural beliefs in, in food. If I actually ask all these people, ask everybody, how's your diet? Even quantifying the amount is difficult, let alone qualifying what they are eating. And there's a lot yeah. of strong beliefs out there 
about whether some things are good or bad. The truth of the matter is really more of the habit. And that's where the latest dietary guidelines have actually emphasized is the behavioral change or the, uh, of the attitude towards how you eat more so than oh, what's good, what's bad. Now, and I definitely want to get into exactly what you tell your patients for all these changes <laughs> in a little bit. But first, I want to ask you, when we are talking about other lifestyle factors, how much of an impact on our gut microbiome are other lifestyle factors like movement or stress or even where we live and how hygienic yeah. these places are? Well, I'm less knowledgeable in some other areas, although there has been research studies showing how kind of like rehabilitation or exercise does change the gut microbiome. There has been some indirect evidence, at least, to suggest that, that, that. A lot of evidence suggests that a lot of neurologic and mood abnormalities is linked to the gut microbiome as well. In fact, that's even as strong, if not even stronger than the links with the cardiovascular. I mean, there's been a lot of work on that area, which is actually important because anxiety, depression, or different changes. We have actually, if you think about the gut microbes as a large and active endocrine organ, which is exactly what it is. It actually produces metabolites that act on distant organs. This is a pretty active and modifiable endocrine organ. So a lot. So it's like our exactly. thyroid. When people think of endocrine, yeah. it's it's but, hormones that will change how an yeah, organ works. But this is actually not a not something that you can touch or, <laughs> or you can see it in a CT scan. This is actually something that is mm-hmm. alive and active. And its process is answer actually more to what we put in our mouth, which is really a Mm -hmm. very interesting idea if you think of it as an endocrine organ. And so that's why the its impact on the on neurologic changes, particularly with mood and anxiety, is such a intriguing area. People would know, and people also know that that the immediate impact. There's a lot of work on diurnal variation on the gut microbes, on the timing to which the gut microbes also sleep and awake to in many ways. And that actually explains why a lot of travel over distances could cause diarrhea and other kind of GI abnormalities. But how does it affect other body, other parts of the body? We actually don't know too much. So there's some acute changes in, in how it impacts on gut microbes. And there's actually more of a sustained longer term effects on how it facilitate or promotes or impacts different disease states. I was just wondering if we know the complications of having already other endocrine or hormonal mm-hmm. problems, people with messed up cortisol release issues or people with thyroid issues or people with pancreas yeah. issues. And now they got microbiome is going through. Yeah, I, I don't know as much in this area, although there's a lot of interest in, say, different disease states having a different microbial composition. So they have been, the majority of the people working in the microbiome field has been very interested in who they are more so than what they do. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they're interested in what they do, but most of the work has been focused on what type, what species, what genus of the bacteria is there are there pathologic ones particularly like invading species almost so it's almost like thinking about keeping a fish tank you need that balance and it's very much so i mean in, in fact 
the more you look at it, the more you think about marine ecology, that there is a balance. The same thing we look at coral reefs, that if there are some environmental changes, there's significant imbalance. The, the miraculous part is every individual, their microbiome composition is quite steady over the course of their lives. And the majority of them actually have it formed around, you know, within one year. When they first came out, they don't have as much. A lot of the work has been done on the early protection, particularly with early life care is dependent on the mother. You know, there's a lot of work on obesity with vaginal delivery. For that reason, the baby actually Mm -hmm. acquired microbes during the first year from what they eat and what, what they expose. And mm-hmm. but the actual stability is there. Even if you've got an antibiotic or got the cold or whatever, it would bounce back. So if you've got bad disease, you can see. Wow. So there's been a few works of people literally sequencing their stool for like years and actually see the consistency. And you can see when they get sick and when they're not. It's actually really fascinating. Now, the very interesting thing is, and this is well known, as people go to their, you know, mid-range between 40 and 60 years old, I mean, basically 50 to 60 years old, that composition does change. And that's actually correlated with all the chronic disease that occurring. Now, it is yeah, natural, and we mm-hmm. actually don't know exactly why. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of work, in, and if you think about it, that's corresponding with in women, there'll be menopause. In men, you know, there'll be also changes in their body habitus. So there's a lot of physiologic changes in the body that we assume to be aging that mm. is actually something physiologically occurring inside us. And so there has been a lot of interest in this area, particularly. And if you think about it, what we just talked about before, how much of this is related to how we take care of ourselves in terms of lifestyle and all that, mm-hmm. that does give the premise that there is a biological basis of these lifestyle modifications being very important in preventing or delaying the development of disease that is vulnerable to the individual. Yeah. Although then you said it's uh, our populations in our gut are very mm-hmm. stable mm-hmm. over time, which is both nice to hear that antibiotics aren't then kind of uh, unsettling if we can't change it. So how changeable are these microbiomes if we do start with these? Yeah. I wish I have a number for you. I don't, but I do know that if you are certainly having habits that you know are not very good, it certainly is not helping that. So if you're actually asking me, how do I talk to my patients? I actually think we as clinicians are not spending enough time talking to them about, you know, and that's one of the reasons why you're interested in your podcast too. The main reason is, at least in Western medicine, we do not say a lot of things that we don't know for sure. And mm-hmm. and But I think the merging of what we know in wellness and healthy living has some bearing with what we call primordial prevention, meaning that it may or may not actually affect you, but we know that this is good in general. So even the impact is small, it certainly is in a favorable spot. If the impact is big, it certainly would help you for good. So I do mm-hmm. think that the, the risk-benefit ratio of this is actually, you know, very favorable. And so we do not spend enough time putting this effort into 
forming good habits and having the access. And that's actually where Western medicine has difficulty. We don't spend too much time on people with high cholesterol or high calcium score and really spend time working out with them as to how to extend their period of wellness. And so when I actually have the opportunity, being a heart failure transplant cardiologist, I think of it more as what can I do rather than being as a goalie, but being a midfielder. How can I get the ball okay. not getting close to the goal here, whether you're talking about soccer mm-hmm. or hockey? Okay, so this is actually important because your defense really comes down to what you can do early on. My job is to rescue people when they fall off the cliff. We mm-hmm. really don't want people to be Way on the cliff. cliff. Yeah, exactly. And right. so, so that part, we don't need even testing to know. Some people gain 20 pounds. Some people have a big belly. I ask people how much they weigh when they're in high school. That's your ideal body weight index. I don't need to pull up a calculator and ask them how much weight they are. And they know. I mean, everybody knows. And so that is actually one of the things. When our metabolism is good and everything is working, and in general, we can tolerate a lot of things that is thrown at us. But that being said, as time goes on, our reserve is less. Whether you're talking about your heart, your kidney, your bones, your muscles, it's the same thing. You kind of peak Mm -hmm. at 20 to 30 and you kind of slowly go down. Our resilience of this really comes down to what we can do to boost that. And Mm -hmm. I think it's easy for people to basically believe in some pills or some, some things that they could do. But I think it's actually quite simple. You kind of do what you, we always kind of know what it is, which is eat in moderation, less processed food, activity. And that's why the whole preventive guidelines are really about that. The eight AHA has this eight, you know, life's eight essentials that talks about now they added sleep as number eight. (laughs) Oh, fantastic. Exactly. Like the stop smoking, how your food should be colors of the rainbow type and the moderation in terms of amount, eat less snacks. These are the things that we kind of know. And I could ask every one of my patients, they would know what it is. So I spend a lot more time mm-hmm. talking to them about what their plans are, what they think they would improve and what their plans are. Because having a decision plan is much more helpful than just in generality. Absolutely. What kind of questions do they ask you where you take the moment to it triggers uh, the reflection? Yeah, I think that's where when people have problems, people have more motivation. I think that's number one. They may think that they are they are not vulnerable. So for that, then family history and all that does help. You know, so for me, I spent a lot more time asking them about what runs in their family and all that. But if they have problems, they have menstrual problem, diabetes problem, they have weight problem, they have hypertension problem, or they already have heart failure. They already somebody tell them there is the heart is weak or the heart is stiff, and nobody likes the word failure. Okay. So they were sitting in outside the clinic and had the sign saying heart failure and they're really upset about it. And but the truth of the matter is it is a really challenging condition. People can die from it. They die more than cancer in many cases. So oh, yeah. we unfortunately doesn't have the same fear distilled on people. But to know that this is something that needs to be addressed, otherwise bad things can happen. If people get a diagnosis of cancer, they actually do want to do something to get around it. In heart failure, they kind of think that, oh, there's drugs for that. I don't need to change my diet. 
You see, what I'm going at. So I think, I think it is an uphill battle. Although I would take a lot of opportunity to try and ask them what exactly are they doing now. I mean, as simple as、uh, what did they do last night. Yeah, memory should be going at least that far back. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly. And even that, sometimes people have trouble. Yeah. And you, you get a lot of amusing conversations if you start. Going through their lifestyle and trying to explain to them what their problems can be and what they can do, and I think it's a matter of encouraging, motivating、mm-hmm. them more so than telling them, "Oh, you should do this, this, and this." I mean, the problem with instituting diet is there's always a start date and a stop date and some extreme that you can't follow. So the key is to try and identify habits and things that they can change. And many times it's logistics and just convenience.、Mm-hmm. Sometimes also lack of recognition that that's important. So, for example, some people are busy; they don't have the time. But then, if you start recognizing that they have an underlying problem, they have a family history、yeah. of this. You know, the consequence if this continued to get worse would be problematic. People actually are very motivated to work on it, and sometimes we actually have advantages of other problems that come along. People have trouble walking. People have you know, aches and pains in a little bit of a holistic way.、Mm-hmm. Ironically, when people ended up taking、uh, hold on fixing that, I'm not talking about it. You know, some people still have difficulty and all that, but I think in most there is modifiable range of both diet and lifestyle changes, and I would urge them that. A majority of that, I can't put it in a pill. In fact, many times when we try to put in a pill, we got the wrong. As you were just、problem. saying with your choline study. Exactly, exactly. So, so then we have to say what has we known that has worked, and some people have seen it work, and that's where. At the end, I would say this. I would say probably really need more relationship with our patients to encourage them, <clears throat> and also. Better tools to understand what is modifiable, and that's really where some of these research is heading. You know, it's not about trying to find things that are good and bad; it's trying to find ways to, you know, maintain or improve their current well-being, their their current functional status. I always equate that with anything that they're familiar with, whether it's a house or a car. If you have to actually, you know. In, improve the longevity of whatever machine or whatever thing that they、mm-hmm. own. You have to take care of them, and so I would have a really frank conversation about okay, how many more years and decades that statistically everybody will be, and people actually it's almost like a sit down moment. This is almost like financial planning. <laughs> it's a sit down moment、oh, yeah. where you can't say okay, well, yeah, it's true, and don't think about it that way. It, I mean, it's still also financial planning because if you're not alive or you're requiring tons of <laughs>、yeah. healthcare. That's affecting that too. Yeah, I did. I did have somebody who stopped smoking because I calculated the amount of money that they spent on cigarettes, and then they, they kind of realized that hey, that's like a mortgage. Oh yeah. Do you、on. find that when it comes to your patients, and they come to you and they see that sign that says heart failure, it's a moment of reflection where they go, "Oh, I am a failure at something," and then you get to paint the picture of you only have one heart, <laughs> and this is a big deal. Yeah, the good news is we do have wonderful medicine now. So, what you read, even 
terms of the statistics of heart failure or even the concept of heart failure is very different. You know, as a heart failure doctor, when people have a weak heart, we start them on four medicines. Even five years ago, don't have that. And in two years time, one out of four people that would have died is actually alive. So it's actually a wonderful time. We have a lot of options. It's actually quite remarkable. It's almost like a lot of diseases that we're very fearful. Now we actually have drugs and and treatment to manage. But I think what we lack on, and even right now for heart failure therapy, we don't have systematic guidelines to tell our patients what to eat. We are still questioning about high salt, low salt, you know, whether it's too low, too high. We do know that high salt definitely can exacerbate, you know, blood pressure and even fluid retention for some people. So anything in moderation. There's a lot of research studies to look at very low salt versus low salt, and they may help some people with symptoms, but at the end, doesn't make people live longer. I think clinicians don't have that clinical trial to guide them, to tell our patients. So if you look at the latest guidelines in heart failure, there's nothing written or said or evidence to say, okay, what type of diet are you going to eat to modify? We rely on the dietary guidelines that has been published, which is, as I mentioned, has shifted from the type of food to the behavioral version is actually also focusing a lot on how to mitigate different metabolic risks, whether cholesterol or diabetes or metabolic syndrome. And all these are actually focused also on the quantity of food, the diversity of food, and also the source of food. Mm -hmm. If you were going to be telling your loved one that just got diagnosed with, let's say, a heart attack or coronary artery disease, Mm -hmm. and now Mm -hmm. their heart's not Mm -hmm. functioning as well as it was, Mm-hmm. What straightforward things would you just very bluntly tell them? Yeah, at least the clinical evidence now suggests that, that the forms of dietary intervention and lifestyle intervention that we have data on is in the form of Mediterranean diet, or even a lot of people advocate plant-based diet. In many ways, they are kind of in a similar in terms of the limitation or the restriction of large quantities of red meat and a much more diverse and also, should I say, quantity-restrictive diet. We have actually learned more about it. It's kind of counter to at least the American dietary system where everything is supersized. Here, I think we actually learn a lot about how less of a quantity is actually helpful. Obviously, we have goals. We have metabolic ranges in terms of glucose, cholesterol, those that, that we know for sure has direct implications on subsequent development coronary events. So those are very strict areas. Many times we do need to use medicine. So cholesterol, great example, LDL, we kept down less than 70 if you have a heart attack. Sometimes we require statin therapy. Many people actually want to say, oh, I'll I'll exercise and I'll look at my diet. It's fine. And I have to explain to them, you know, as we get less young, our liver is unable to taken the cholesterol. So it's actually more about nature than nurture. And many ways, some people are more vulnerable. If you had a heart attack, you know, you do need the medicine to help you for that because that is one of the culprits. So sometimes it takes a little bit of effort to explain to people. And and so I do spend some time explaining to people there's a combination, both dietary and lifestyle, but also, you know, some medicine do help. I would definitely set goes with them or uh, at least follow the AHA preventive cardiology guidelines in terms of the exercise prescription, I do tell them to, to actually take a diary. It's the old style, old way of doing it, but it's a reminder. 
if you actually have to write something down every day, it's a reminder that you are doing something. Mm -hmm. And some people, I even ask them to do a food diary, which is definitely difficult. But the more you do that, the more you you ended up recognizing you are controlling. Definitely food outside of the regular meal times. It's one of the bigger culprits. Some people, if they have challenges and many people are interested, we would definitely get them to see preventive cardiology, to get nutritional counseling. A good number of people do definitely benefit, particularly after PCI or cabbage, to do cardiac rehab, which is certainly something that everybody, even the most reluctant people, ultimately think is actually quite good. In many ways, it is a commitment to an exercise rehab. It's more so than the actual exercise rehab. It's that you have to go there three times a week and to face somebody. So it's almost like, you know, having a trainer, if you think about it, you have to go there. You can't just have an excuse. Accountability. So I think, I think if you think about it, all these are behavioral. It is not necessarily, uh, but the behavioral change do get a lot of people ultimately feel that they are, yeah of their current status. I still remember talking to a few patients. I mean, there's a lot of direct psychological consequence. There is a, I won't use the word stigma, but there is certainly a sense of vulnerability that's associated with it. So a lot of it is to establish that relationship and actually to encourage our patients that not only the drug therapy that's important, but then they could actually change the natural history. And in my point of view, it's actually quite different. My point of view is that my job is to make sure that you don't become a patient of mine that needed transplant. Yeah. So there is something I want to prevent. Mm-hmm. And I think there is some motivation in that because I do think that nowadays there is a lot of option for us to actually get people to live their full lives. And even for some of the sickest patients who had a really rough time after a heart attack. Many people actually stabilize. And that is one good news. There's a lot of people with cancer that we have a very predictive natural history. In cardiology, we are actually much more fortunate. This is not as predictable. So there's more opportunity to take back the reins. Exactly. Okay. One more science question, though. There was Mm -hmm. one paper that you wrote a while back ago, and you mentioned that there was bacteria found in the plaque that was forming on the vessel. Yeah, that's old, old data. It has been challenging, to say the least, because uh, if you think about it, to identify DNA material, it could be anywhere. So there's, for example, a lot of work on cancer, having bacteria that's causing cancer. But it's actually hard to confirm because, of course, what is contaminant and what is not. But there's been a lot of validation that we are not as sterile as we think. There's a lot of things that is floating around in our bodies from the gut mm-hmm. or even circulating. And one always wonder, why don't we get sick with, you know, all the different types of infectious disease that, and so there's certainly the whole balance between our immune system. And of course, some of the DMA remnants can be there. There's even been studies, I don't think it's in humans, definitely in animals, where they actually label some bacteria in the gut and then trace them to see where they went. And a lot of times you see the the, the, the white cells actually trying to attack them and actually they kept it in some places. So the truth of the matter is the presence of DNA doesn't actually, we, we actually don't know what it means. Okay. What we actually do know what it can mean is that there is some involvement and participation 
of microbes in different parts of the body. And some of it may be kind of naturally occurring in every one of us. It's just like I can tell you everybody has cancer cells. It's just how we balance our immune system to get rid of it. That's why people immunocompromised have more chance for strange type cancers that are occurring. That is a new shift for my brain because the bloodstream is supposed to be sterile. That's just what it's supposed to do. Yeah. There's a lot of things that we think before that both science and understanding have shifted. So I think that's where the joy of clinical care and research, there's a paper in Annals about what one and a half decades ago now called The Half-Life of Truth. Hmm. It's about 12 years, apparently, at least in the liver literature. But it was basically saying that in 12 years, half of what we know had to be modified, which I think it makes sense. It's been pretty much so. I think a lot of things that we do, I've always, I just told you, in heart failure, we have four drugs now and how we believe in some medicines. Think about it in the 1960s. We think that beta blockers is prohibitive in heart failure. Now we're giving it because it's life-saving. You know, yeah. so things do change and we do have to, and that's where advances occur, that we actually now figure out better ways to take care of our patients, to make them live longer and live better. But the lifestyle modification part actually remains true. We are just refining what we know and matching with what we know with the scientific knowledge that comes along. So what we talked about in terms of dietary counseling and all that, it's not contradicting to what we don't know. I mean, it's still the same thing that we tell our patients all along as to what is good. How we can keep that is another thing. So I think that's where the benefit of there's a whole catchphrase phrase of implementation science is important because we kind of know what is good. Mm-hmm. How do we get that to the broader population to deliver something that right now is not adequate, meaning preventive strategies to avoid the occurrence of downstream consequences. Yeah. So, which is really interesting because a lot of heart failure doctors, I ended up very interested in prevention for that reason. It, it's, I imagine there's only a certain number of hearts to be given away. And so you've got yeah. to be able to look at prevention. And yeah. it's interesting the point you make that even though there is cutting edge science that you are researching and discovering and just amazing things that you're figuring out in general, that there's an underlying theme of, we already know that this kind of food is helpful more than the other kind mm-hmm. of food. We already know that this mm-hmm. kind of movement is more helpful than the other kind. Mm-hmm. And it's a matter yeah. of getting that message hammered home to more people so that you don't have as many patients to see. And there's a lot of things that are made believe that they are beneficial when they may or may not be. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of unknowns as well. So what was advertised to be good, even things that we may believe at some point in time, may be different. So it is an important objective of being a practicing clinician to to be versed and to be able to contribute to the emerging science because it's a lot easier for us to learn what is going on and then apply and validate at the bedside than for our basic science colleagues to learn what heart failure is. It's actually, we take decades to actually understand what is the manifestation. So we have some expertise. I think there's almost an allergy to research (laughs) in practicing clinicians. We have many other things to do, but on the other hand, most of us have been intrigued to do that because we spent decades thinking about this. Mm -hmm. 
for the benefit of a patient and to the health of the population at whole. And I think a lot of interventions we know works are still in the infancy of trying to deliver to those who are vulnerable. And so it's a little bit of a task that is somewhat Herculean, but I do think that it is a much needed effort. And diet and lifestyle modification is a well-known, a big and challenging feat. Now, if there are tools for us to better apply this, if there are visualization that for us to actually guide us to how to best follow a heart-healthy diet, I'll be the first to say, great. Yeah, as it's just got to make its way into something official that we can all look at and go, boom, one, two, three. Yeah. And that everyone can look yeah. at. I have my own yeah. one, two, threes. But okay. <laughs> so as a clinician scientist, what is fascinating and exciting to you right now? Where, where do you see your research going or the research of others or just anything in life? At least in this area of investigation, the fascinating part obviously is how do we we had all the bird watchings. How do we actually intervene to alter the natural history and improve, you know, particularly in people who can't adequately reduce their risks and all that? So obviously there has been a lot of really innovative ideas. A lot of therapeutics are actually being developed on that ground. Like anything else, when we understand the mechanism, there's a potential to develop strategies to overcome those pathologic processes. So for example, there are several companies that are looking into changing the microbial composition or very, very targeted, or even inhibiting the enzymes that make all these things that potentially is the pathway that causes problems. So think of it as, they call it drugging the bug. So it's, it's not killing them, it's actually trying to modulate that. Think of it as putting the bugs on a diet. So instead of them taking all the nutrients and causing all the problems in that pathways, mm -hmm. how can we modulate that and lower the, the long-term risk? And if you think about it, the most vulnerable are people who have accumulating levels. You're talking about people with very bad kidneys who can't eliminate them. Are there any ways for us to, to change that modulation? It's not even about microbes. It's talking about just what are the strategies to eliminate kind of well-known adversaries in this case, that affects physiology. So I think every day we have new areas of excitement. I think the latest excitement in our field is obviously the SGLT2 inhibitors. It was kind of an orphan drug for diabetes that nobody cares or knows about five, 10 years ago. Now it's like everybody with any form of heart failure need to be on it as a first line. And that's because of clinical trials. So I'm actually very excited to continue to be as heart failure transplant cardiologist. Many of our medicine are there and saves lives because of clini the clinical trials that is being performed. Mm -hmm. And the clinical trials also allow us to challenge what we thought it was good or bad. And so I think a big part of our effort continue to do uh, many of these clinical trials to, to explore new drugs, to repurpose drugs that are existing, and to try and extend our knowledge of who will be the people who are beneficial. For SGLT2 inhibitors, uh, now we expand it to people not only with weak hearts, but also people with mildly reduced, but even all preserved heart function, but signs and symptoms of heart failure. And of course, I think the near term would really be trying to understand whether it would be 
in a preventive mode where they could actually really prevent people from developing heart failure. We know that it may be the case for diabetics. What about other people with metabolic syndrome, with obesity? You know, there's a huge amount of very promising and different drugs in the endocrine world to tackle obesity, which is obviously a big issue, lead to metabolic problems. Mm -hmm. Now, guess what? Very little work is done on interventions on lifestyle modification. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. So the, the main thing that we actually had is the Mediterranean diet, which is a Spanish group that actually randomized control trial on the Mediterranean diet. It's published a lot of work and has been validated in various studies. And so we do, we do have a lot of pools in that arena, but, but we are not very good at guiding our clinicians. And so to implement what we know to the bedside is also a key area. How do we apply what we already know rather than how to discover new things? It's a parallel process. I do think that we also need to get into a culture of trying to refine these approaches so that we could do it more upstream. Yeah. So if you had one thing you could tell your patients to be, to never become your patients, what one thing would you tell people to do? <laughs> Eat right and exercise. Yeah, I think it is. And in fact, even if you have a genetic vulnerability, that would actually lower your risk. So we kind of know that for a while now. Framingham taught us. So you know, we kind of know that that is helpful. Almost everybody would have things that they could improve upon, both in mind and body. And so I do think that the holistic way of looking at what is your priority and how you can have a strategy to focus on wellness and, and well-being is key. And there's a lot of temptations out there oh, <laughs> in yeah. terms of, and it's a balance of what is important in health and what is important in life. So I, I do spend a lot of time talking to patients about what, what their desires are and all that. I have a joke with my patients when they reach 80, I always joke to them saying that you made it statistic. Most of them actually got there because they did something right. Yeah. And mm -hmm. they had some help too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, this has been fantastic. Thank you very much for spending this time talking with me mm -hmm. for the benefit of so many people that can learn so much from what you've said. And it's been very interesting. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Let's take a moment just to recap some of the key parts of that fascinating discussion. And again, thank you to Dr. Tang. Your gut is not just a tube transporting nutrients in and waste out. It's a hormonal organ that affects organs throughout the body, including the brain and the heart. At around age 50, life in the gut starts to change and coincides with when chronic diseases like heart disease start to show up. From my own experience, anecdotally, the age of people with chronic diseases like heart disease and diabetes and high blood pressure is getting younger and younger. This coincides with the food that people are taking in getting worse and worse from generation to generation. The top advice that Dr. Tang could give to anyone so that they don't become one of his patients and are not in need of someone else's heart is to eat right and exercise. He mentioned the benefits of the Mediterranean diet and a plant-based diet and how similar they are. I'll add in that how much a diet gets to call itself Mediterranean is directly proportional to how plant-heavy it is. Overall, most of us eat every day and that fact can either help us or hurt us. Until next time, please spread the word on this podcast by leaving a five-star review. Also, make sure you tell the important people in your life to take a listen, especially those with hearts or that eat food. Remember, the way you live 
can save your life.